Good morning, Orangewood. Good to see you. Thank you, worship team. What a wonderful time of being led into the presence of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. This morning, we are continuing in our series in the book of Ephesians, the breakout series as we look at how the gospel breaks into our lives and then is supposed to break out of our lives. And we're going to see some powerful truths. And so before we look at those truths, why don't we talk to the powerful God of the universe, who's also your father because of Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Our great God, we do come into your presence today. So thankful that we can say that we are your children, that we can come before the one who is to be adored, the one about which nothing evil could be said, only good and only powerful, the one about which nothing greater can even be thought. So we come into your presence today, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and we worship you, we glorify you, we ask that you would continue to show us who you are and how powerful you are. And Lord, we do literally come as we are into your presence today. We can come no other way. So you know our hurts, you know our sorrows, you know those things that dominate our mind and so we bring those to you. They, we lay them at your feet right now as we, uh, we desire to hear a word from you and to hear you speak into our lives. And so be honored and be glorified. May the gospel be center in our lives today. Holy Spirit, would you enlighten the eyes of our heart that we would understand the hope of our calling, the riches of the glory of the inheritance in the saints, and what is the high call of the inheritance of those who believe I pray that you would, you would speak to us today in a powerful way. So we do pray for the one who teaches that you'd forgive him his sins and use one who is finite to communicate your infinite truth. For our desire is to hear our Father's voice, our Lord's voice, as mediated through your spirit. For we pray in Jesus' strong name. Amen. Well, you all get emails all the time. You get emails all the time, and you get the same emails all the time, don't you? How many of you have received an email? You don't need to raise your hand, but how many of you received an email this week that you had about five years ago, right? Yeah, me too. I got one of those, and I'm going to share it with you because it's so contemporary. It's great. I love it. Uh, my, fr- my friend Tom sent it to me. It's called Life Gets Better with Age, and this is uh, an email written by different people at different ages about what they've learned, so... Uh, The first one is this. I've learned that I like my teacher because she cries when we sing Silent Night. Age five. I've learned that our dog doesn't want to eat my broccoli either. (laughs) Right, right? Age seven. I've learned that just when I get my room the way I like it, mom makes me clean it up again. I like that. Age 12. Age 15. I've learned that although it's hard to admit it, I'm secretly glad my parents are strict with me. Trust me on this, parents. They will never tell you this. They will, but it's true. Uh, I've learned that silent company is often more healing than words of advice. Age 24. I've learned that wherever I go, the world's worst drivers have followed me there. <laughs> Age 29. I, I, I've shared this with you before, I think, but my daughter Jessie's wise advice for driving on Sunday morning is, Dad, never tailgate somebody, which is a sin of mine. She said, because they always turn into the same church you're going to right there in the morning. I've learned that someone says uh, something unkind about me. I must live so that no one will believe it. Age 30. 
I've learned that there are people who love you dearly, but just don't know how to show it. Age 42. I've learned that you can make someone's day by simply sending them a little note. True. Age 44. I got one of these this week. I've learned that the greater a person's sense of guilt, the greater his or her need to cast blame on others. Whoa. Age 48. I've learned that making a living is not the same as making a life. Age 58. I've learned that you shouldn't go through life with a keeper's mitt on both hands. You need to be able to throw something back. Love that. Age 64. Took you that long? (laughs) I know. I've learned that if you pursue happiness, it will elude you. But if you focus on your family, the needs of others, your work, meeting new people, and doing the very best you can, happiness will find you, age 65. I've learned that even when you have pains, I don't have to be one. <laughs> age 74. How, much, how many problems did he cause before he figured that one out? I've learned that I still have a lot to learn. Age 78. Wow. I love those. And the reason why I love those is because they show people growing and, and, and developing. I love to grow. I love to learn. That's part of who I am. I want to keep growing. I love that. I love, but the, but the other thing I really like about those comments is that these all have to do, most of them, almost all of them have to do with what? Relationships. Isn't that true? Almost all of the important things that we have to learn in life have to do, yes, sure, with our skills, with what we do, but the most important things are about relationships. What, what, did, what did Jesus say when someone came to him and said, Lord, what are the greatest commandments? What did he say? You shall love God and love people. Why? Because the whole law is summed up that way because what we're about are relationships ultimately Because all of life is lived in the presence of God, quorum Deo, we live before God, quorum Deo, that Latin phrase, but but also we live with each other. And so relationships are absolutely key. And not one of us is going to say, you know, at the end of our life, we're in the hospital or wherever, we're going, man, I wish I spent more time in my office. No, we're going to say, I wish I did this better with my relationships, or I want to do this better. You know, so that's what we think about. Relationships are crucial. The gospel of Jesus Christ. If you're not, if you're with us today visiting, we're glad you're here. We love to have people here that aren't saved yet. They're not Christians yet. You wonder, what do I need to be saved from? You know, I don't even know why you guys meet on Sunday. That's why I came to just check you out. We're glad you're here. None of us are perfect. But the reality is the gospel of Jesus Christ is good news. And that, that means it's a game changer in our life. It's a game changer in our relationships. It's a game changer in every way. And we're not perfect. We haven't arrived. We mess up a lot. But, but today in our text, we're going to see a focus is how the gospel is to break into our lives and then to break out of our lives in key relationships uh, and is going to be helpful uh, and hurtful and convicting, mostly to the one talking up front. But it's going to be great. And we're going to, we're going to learn a lot. So the big idea that we're going to look at in this text, Ephesians 5, 21 through 33, is that grace, the grace of God energizes relationships. The grace of God, energi- the grace of God is the engine, the power for relationships. So let's look at the text, Ephesians 5, verses 21 through 33. Uh, we have the ESV up here, and I have the NASB in here. That's my fault. 
Um, so deal with it. <laughs> Here it is. Jumping into the text, Ephesians 5 verse 21, the apostle Paul says, and be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives. Just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, and that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. So husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church. Because we are members of his body. For this reason... A man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, but I'm speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Nevertheless, each individual among you also is to love his own wife, even as himself, and the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. This is God's holy word. Thanks be to God. Well, you can see it probably. You can't miss it. Grace energizes relationships. And we're going to see how grace energizes relationships, first of all, in the church family, in the body of Christ, right? First of all, here. Then in the nuclear family, we're going to be talking about uh, how grace energizes wife to husband and then husband to wife. And then we're going to talk next week uh, about how grace energizes relationship parent to child. If I knew the kids were going to be in here this week. I had to preach to them. But there it is. So Mark, uh, Mark uh, the shark will be speaking to the families about that. Also work, because next week we're also going to see how grace energizes relationships at work. And, uh, but today we're going to talk about in the church family and in the nuclear family, husband and wife. Let's talk about the church family. First of all, because he jumps into verse 21. Actually, verse 21 is sort of that summarizing verse that says, be subject to one another in the fear or in the respect of Christ. Now, verse 21 uh, really refers back, if you've read the text earlier, and you can go back and look at this, or if you have your Bible, you can go back and look at it. It refers back really to verse 15, where the apostle Paul says, walk in wisdom with one another. And so as he teaches on walking in wisdom with one another, he summarizes it by saying, in the church family, be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. By the way, Christians are possessed with the, the need to, to get wisdom, aren't we? Isn't wisdom something that we're about? Yes, it's, wisdom is something we're about. Yeah, yeah good. Good, I see some guys go, I don't know, this is a trick question. No, Old Testament has all kinds of wisdom literature, doesn't it? A lot of wisdom literature. The Hebrew word is chokmah. In the New Testament, the, Hebrew, the Greek word is sophia. We are interested in wisdom because just knowledge is never enough. 
You see, wisdom is understanding penetratingly how knowledge should be applied. That's what wisdom is. Wisdom is understanding the situation, having a knowledge of the situation, and knowing how to act and live and work in that situation. What I, what I see our, our pa- pastor search committee doing is exhibiting a great deal of wisdom. I love the methodical updates. They're working uh, hard behind the scenes. I love the, the, the plant. Amy, you're brave getting up here and talking about that. Great job. But, but you see the wisdom in the process? You can have the knowledge of what to do, but wisdom is fleshing it out. And so Paul has been talking about how we can walk wisely with each other. And he's saying that the best way to walk wisely with each other in the church family, in the body of Christ, is by being subject to one another. And that means to live reverently with one another, to live kindly with one another, not to come to church with my agenda, but to come as into a family, a good family, not a dysfunctional family, but in a good family. And showing that we're open to one another. Being reverent to Christ means, first of all, I've got to be reverent in my family. Not just in worship. My church family. And so this is a powerful, uh, powerful reality. How grace of God that we have received in Christ has to be moved into our gracious relationships with other people, right? Because people of grace should be gracious. And we're not always but that's how it ought to, ought to flesh out in grace. When, uh, when my oldest son, Joel, was one year of age, he gave me a book on Father's Day. That's what it says. <laughs> to my dad, I love you. Happy Father's Day, 1985. Joel. So this didn't come from Joel. It came from my wife. And the title of the book is Well-Intentioned Dragons by Marshall Shelley. Well, Intention Dragons, a book written for pastors. I read it 30, 40, 50 times. It's fascinating. I, I love the, uh, the dedication at the, in, at the inside. To those scorched by dragons, but not reduced to ashes, nor hardened beyond feeling, who in the face of beastliness maintain their humanity and divine calling, this book is dedicated. It's a book for pastors. I was a brand new pastor. Here's the the table of contents. Chapter one, complex conflicts in the church. Conflicts in the church. No, they're not just conflicts. They're complex conflicts. Chapter two, identifying a dragon. Number three, personal attacks. Number four, the play for power. Number five, the best defense. Number six, the second best defense. Number seven, when the dragon might be right. I hated that chapter. Number eight, when it's time to confront. Number nine, when there's no resolution. Listen, that was, pow- that was a powerful book. When I went to seminary, I didn't go to, I went to seminary to learn how to study the Bible so I could teach God's people how to follow Jesus. I, if I'd have known, if I'd have known that I'd be fighting dragons, I would have taken jujitsu. <laughs> I had no idea or knife fighting or something. The reality is, is that when I got into the church, I realized as a pastor, there was far more conflict than I ever understood. Far more conflict than, George, be careful about this. You're in seminary. Take jujitsu for crying out loud. There's more conflict in the church of Jesus Christ than anybody ever wants to admit. I thought dragons were a myth. They're real. I've met them. 
And, and I've had elders who have resigned being elders simply because there was too much conflict. They said, Pete, I didn't sign up for this. I said, I get it. I'll let you get off. After I tried to say, hey, we need elders that know how to lead and how to fight too for the right things. I, 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 I've had elders that didn't know they were a dragon until I was able to tell them, you know, you're a dragon. I didn't know I was a dragon. At times I was. I mean, but Jesus, Paul knew this. Jesus knew this. We need to hear the reality is, is that when we're called by grace into a relationship with the God of the universe, that grace is to make us gracious. And so in the body of Christ, uh, that's why he says being subject to one another uh, in the fear of Christ. What's a dragon like in the church? A dragon is, it's about me. A dragon is, this is my issue and you have to adapt to my issue. A dragon is like, I'm always going to find an opportunity to trash you if you don't buy into what I think is important. A dra- Are you getting this, brother? Because you're new too and you're in seminary. You're getting this? Take notes. Uh, I'm not going to loan you the book and I still read it, okay? The reality is, is a dragon would rather be critical and demanding than submissive and, and go along. And that's why Paul says that the way we walk wisely with one another, the way the body of Christ is supposed to work, and some people don't come to church anymore because, hey, man, you Christians are way too critical. Um, what's helped me is in coming to church and, 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 and leading my church and leading God's people to recognize that Jesus did not die for a nameless mass of humanity. He died for you by name and by face, and you're far more precious to him then I will ever be able to, I can't love people like he did, but you are precious to him. So while I can use my gifts and have my concerns and, and, and give my leadership, I, I can't be a dragon and that we need to relate to one another in the body of Christ. By the way, we have good leaders here at Orangewood. Strong leaders, but not dragons. I know dragons when I see them, I can smell the smoke. And you have strong leaders, but you don't have dragons. Good thing, isn't it? It's a great thing. And so in the body of Christ, as we think of moving ahead as a church, wow, this is very practical, isn't it? Because if we learn to be subject to one another in the fear of Christ, out of reverence for Christ, then they'll be ready when we get a new senior pastor. Then all of you after the service won't pounce on him when he gets here and say, this is the agenda that is the most important in the church. I love you and have a wonderful plan for your life. Isn't it going to be great if when we get a new pastor, that's going to take time, isn't it? For us as a church to move ahead fleshing out with wisdom, being subject to one another as we see how Jesus is going to chart the course. See how practical this is? Grace energizes our relationships with one another in the body of Christ. Now, let's talk about the church or about the home in the nuclear family. Here we go. This is a big challenge. Let's talk about wives and husbands, and then we'll talk about husbands and wives. Ladies, here, Paul deals with you first. And, and he deals with the principle of submission. This is probably the verse you wrote, uh, read this morning. Wives, be subject to your husbands. That's probably your favorite verse, I'm sure. If you're married, uh, uh, there it is. And by the way, as we deal with marriage, I've got to make the point, uh, and it's important for us to understand 
that Paul, although he's going to deal with uh, parenting next and work next, Paul is not against singleness, is he? What's Paul's marital status right now as he writes this? Single. Was Paul ever married? We don't know. Some scholars think that maybe he was to be a Jewish leader at his time and his place in Jerusalem. He may well have had to have been married. We don't know. Uh, but we know at this point he was not. He's not anti-singles. In fact, you want to read 1 Corinthians, 1 Second Corinthians? He has all kinds of positive things to say about single people. Right? So he's not against singleness. Timothy was single. And, uh, and so the reality is, is that now he, he is trying to bring how grace affects the nuclear family because the family's important and it's crucial. And so, but he's not leaving out uh, the idea of singleness. Now, as we talk about submission in the, church, in the church family and going into the nuclear family, it's important to understand uh, what the cultural context of the first century was when Paul wrote this letter. You cannot understand this, this teaching on submission, ladies or gentlemen, until you understand the first century. As one historian said, uh, no one reading this passage in the 21st century can fully realize how great it is. Another uh, intellectual said this, one of the chief diseases of which ancient civilization died was a low view of women. And certainly that was the case. When this text burst onto the scene in the first century AD, uh, maybe around 62 AD or so when Paul wrote it, 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 the Jewish view of women was horrible. And, And the Jewish view of women should have been a high view of women, shouldn't it? Because we see from Genesis that women are created in the image of God and that they're a team. They're supposed to be a team, a one flesh team. Uh, but the Jews had lost all of that by this time that this was written. Uh, Deuteronomy 24.1 was regularly invoked about divorcing your wives for trivial reasons. The Jews had a terrible view of women and the Greeks were no better. Greek society and the Greek family was practically dead. It's horrible. If we think one thing about the Greek family, we think about the reality of sexuality. Sexuality was rampantly out of control in the Greek family. Children were abused. There was all kinds of sexual permissiveness at every level. Women were abused, but also women were free, quite free, in many areas of Greek culture. Sexuality was rampant. Uh, uh, The family, trust me in this, the family was virtually dead. Meant very little. What about Rome? Worse. Worse? Uh, the Roman culture was terrible. Uh, in the first 500 years of the Roman Republic, catch it, the first 500 years of the Roman Republic, not one case of divorce on record. You say, nah. I, you know, I don't know how people find these things out. But Spurius Carvilius Ruga is the first Roman on record, 234 B.C., to go through a divorce. How about that, sports fans? 260 years later in Paul's time, oh, Rome. Rome was terrible. One woman had 10 husbands. Another had eight husbands in five years. Jerome, the the theologian and pastor, talks about a woman who was married to her 23rd husband, and she was his 21st husband. People were married to be divorced and divorced to be married. The Romans mem- uh, uh, cataloged their time by their consuls, Roman women, by their husbands. 
Yeah, I was married to him. Oh, I, when was that? Uh, so, so there was a familial and a sexual nightmare when this text burst onto the scenes. And our culture is following in this steps. Our culture is going right back to what the gospel overturned. You feel me on this? So when this came onto the scene, this is how the gospel revamps relationships and brings them back into the order that God designed. And so, ladies, let, let's, uh, let's talk. Wives, be subject to your own husbands. Don't leave out the word own there because that's the only way you can understand this text. Women were completely abused in many uh, cultural contexts. And so Paul is saying, hey, your dignity is far beyond this. Yes, subjection is necessary, but it's a subjection, submission is necessary in marriage to your husband, not to all other men. He's not saying that women are the second-class citizens. Are you kidding me? In Christ, the, uh, the identity of man and women have been re- both raised. So ladies, you don't have to, this is this saying, you don't, some guy treats you like dirt, you don't have to take it. You're not subject to every man. You're subject to your husband. Uh, you don't have to let that happen. The gospel brought this kind of cultural revolution. In verse 23, now, we see the reason why Paul is telling the wives uh, to be submissive to their own husbands. Why? This is the original order that was set up uh, in creation. And, and it's important for us to understand that Romans 5 Blames Adam for the fall and not Eve. Time out. Footnote. Was Eve at all complicit in Adam's decision to eat the fruit? Was she complicit in any way? The answer is yes. That's not the politically correct answer. It's just the logical answer. But who's blamed? Adam. Rightly so. Why? Because he had been appointed to be the leader of the first family and the leader of the human race. And he's responsible. And, and so the reality is, is uh, uh, it's important to understand that Adam was responsible. Submission is necessary, but he should have he led. Instead, he was submissive when he should have led. You don't like this, read uh, Larry Crabb's book, The Silence of Adam. Great book on the subject. Uh, and uh, it, it uh, gives this reality that the man is, as Paul said, the head of the wife. As Christ is the head of the church, well, so the man is supposed to be the head of the family. And the Greek word for head is head. <laughs> Kephale in the Greek. And it's simply, you know, if you read the ESV study Bible, you will see the very best succinct uh, explanation of the, of the lexical meaning of the word kephale that you'll find anywhere. I had to read multiple books. They put it there in, in simple form. Kephale means loving, responsible leadership with authority. It doesn't mean source of life. It can't be made to mean source of life. And anybody who does that, how can a man be the source of life for a woman? But he is the responsible, loving authority. And this doesn't change from culture to culture. That's why submission is brought back up in the first century. Not because that was a first century value, but because it was a first generation value. 
that is restored in the gospel. And so notice, guys, this is important, and ladies, important for you to understand too. This is not saying, men, force your wife into submission. Does it say that? No. Doesn't say it, never says it, you won't find it in the scriptures. And some men, catch me on this, are impossible to submit to. I had a friend call me the other day, and, and he wants me to adjudicate his marriage. So I met with he and his wife. But I'm not a pastor of a local church, and he's not under my leadership, and I don't have elders that can help him. And, uh, and so he, uh, he, um, he, he said, what's your decision? I said, you go back to your elders and make a decision. Because quite frankly, you're a difficult guy to submit to. And I don't know how this is going to go forward. Ladies, some men are impossible to submit to. I get that. I've been a pastor long enough. Guys, is that just a little bit convicting? The holier we are, the easier submission is. So ladies, if you're in a tough situation, don't escape the fact that you've been given elders and pastors to help you have a deeper understanding of what to do in a difficult marriage. How do I submit? How do I work this out? That's what our elders and our pastors are supposed to help us do by the grace of God. And it's a challenging, challenging thing. But nevertheless, ladies, here's a challenge for you. And that is to find a way, given a culture that is radically against any kind of submission, to find a way to do that. I would encourage you to get The Meaning of, the, of Marriage by Tim Keller. It's a book I require for all uh, premarital counseling. Do you see all these notes I have in here? I require that every time I do a premarital counsel, I'm in the midst of one right now. Tim ought to give me a, a royalty for every uh, copy I have encouraged people to buy. It's a great book. And, um, and, and, and if, 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 if submission was a challenge in the first century, it was greater then than it is now, but it's difficult now. And I'm so glad they're godly women. You have a women's ministry in this church and, and you guys can pursue all that. All right. Uh, husbands and wives. Ladies, there we go. Three verses for you. Guys, how many verses for you? Nine. Why? Because you're more difficult. We're more difficult. We really are. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. Uh, this is so powerful here to understand nine. And he goes on. I'm not going to read them all. I already read them. But nine verses for men, three verses for women. Why? Because the men are in the position of leadership. Right, guys? Uh, and I have dedicated the last of my life toward developing men. That's the, uh, I did while I was a pastor, but my mid ministry now, we have two sites in Orlando. We're going to start a third site. Why? Because the best thing I can do for women and children and churches in our culture is develop guys. Why? Because we're called to be spiritual leaders. And it's a challenge to do that. And we need help. Just as women need help from other women, we men need uh, help from one another in the body of Christ. And, and so this is a big challenge. And, and so, guys, the requirements are greater for us because we're in the leadership position. It's just the way it is. That's just the way it is. And, uh, and, and so the challenge, you know, that's why we have higher standards for elders, by the way. You notice that? And deacons, they must be above reproach. 
And pastors, James 3.1 says this. I remember when I was being ordained by the Orangewood elders, and it was in, on Trinity Woods and the other facility. I was down on my knees, and they were laying hands on me. I think I shared some of this with you. And all those, there was about 20 guys there, because some ministers from around and all the elders, and they were laying hands on me. I'm on my knees, and I'm thinking, my back is going to pick and break right now, because those guys were leaning on me, praying that I wouldn't mess it up as a pastor. And at that point, I realized that that ordination to leadership is about carrying a burden, a good burden, but a burden nevertheless. And James 3.1 says, let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such, you will incur a stricter judgment. Why do I bring this up? I bring it up because so many people in the church don't understand why we hold elders, deacons, pastors to a higher standard. You go, well, we ought to be gracious, right? Answer, yes. But, but we are called to a higher standard. We can't mess it up. We're leading the flock. And when we mess it up, it hurts other people. That's true with with husbands too, because of the position of leadership. And so guys, this is so important. Notice, notice this is not talking when it says, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church. It's not talking about tyrannical leadership, is it? I don't read that in there. How did Jesus love the church as a prophet, priest, and king? How did Jesus love the church? By giving himself sacrificial leadership. It's only been a couple of times in the 39 years that Karen and I have been married that I've had to say, honey, I think we need to do it this way. We work this stuff out, don't we? And I, by the way, I've kidded that Karen and I have been married 39 years and they've been the, the best 39 years of her life. I've kidded that here. Um, you know, my wife is very, very spiritual. James says that spiritual growth comes through trials. Who do you think brought her most of those trials? <laughs> I'm just saying. And, and, and so the reality is, is that uh, we, we, we are, are called to love our wives in a way to bring them a joyful and, and life as best we can. I wish my dad had taught me that. I wish I, didn't, I wish I hadn't had to go through so many I'm sorry times. But here it is. And we get to love our wives as Christ loved the church. Guys, I want to say this. Um, don't tell me you're not a leader. In your family, you're the leader because God ordained it. And you were ordained just like I was. On your wedding day, you were ordained. A switch was flicked and you were ordained as the head of a household. And when you had kids, another switch was flicked inside of you. We men don't really start growing up until we get married and have kids even though our wives have them, I know. But we don't move into our manhood until we get into those key roles. That's why I tell young guys following Jesus, yeah, work on your career, but get married as early as you can. Find the right woman. Get married. It'll help your manhood. Um, it's important. Marriage is a great adventure. And we can continue growing every phase, every step along the way to be that man, that leader that loves and leads and carries responsibility. By the way, just as women need to be discipled by more godly women, we men need uh, the, the fellowship of men. Where do I start? Thursday morning would be a good place of Ironman. 
We need one another in the body of Christ. And I love that we can keep growing all of our lives. There's a man in our ministry who, um, African-American man who is, uh, has made more money and lost more money than I'll ever make in my entire life. I'm sure he's a millionaire. Uh, I, I, he's played golf with secretaries of states. And, uh, um, but only about a year ago, um, has he really, he'd he been a Christian, but he hadn't been growing much. Only about a year ago did he start getting that he needs to be more loving. Guys, we grow slow. And, uh, and, and so his two sons, one's in D.C., works for NASA. Another, I, I, I don't know, another son someplace out there. These two sons are talking to each other and go, what's going on with dad? Dad's becoming more loving. What's up with that? One guy's going, he's drinking that Jesus juice on Tuesday mornings, you know. I love that. Guys, we, keep, we get to keep growing. I love that. As John Haggai said, my great concern is not whether you failed, but whether you're content with your failure. Another quote, I can accept failure. Everyone fails at something, but I, I cannot accept not trying. And so the reality is that I'm always tougher on the guys than I am on the ladies. Why? Because I'm always tougher on leaders who have ultimate responsibility in the family. Than, and I'm tougher on myself. But catch this. Grace enables us to face the real us, doesn't it? And that's why we keep growing. If you're not getting grace into your life on a regular basis, you're not going to be able to face yourself. You're going to deny you need to grow. You're going to deny you need to change. This is true for women and men. We need grace to be to get into the family of God. We need grace to, to live one, with one another in the family of God. And we need grace in our own families. And if the, more I, the more every morning God tells me, son, you're still growing, but I love you deeply. And uh, you are my deeply beloved, redeemed son. The more I get that grace, then when I have to face my sins, what can I do? I can face my sins. And I can repent. You know what I'm getting so much better at in marriage? When Karen brings up things. Yeah, you're right. I see that. Instead of, no, come on. Just be a little overly sensitive, aren't you, honey? You go pray about that. That's why she's so spiritual. The gospel is new and makes us new every morning. Grace energizes relationships, doesn't it? No matter what phase of life you're in. So the challenge to us is not that we come to, I can't come to, I'm not the Holy Spirit. I know the Holy Spirit is here today. So my question is, what has the Holy Spirit been saying to you? You might be mad at me for saying what I've said. Fine, cool. But what is the Holy Spirit saying to you about anything that we've talked about today? And where does he want you to receive grace, to know you're loved and redeemed in Christ, but, but continue to grow? What are you going to walk away with? I don't know. Maybe talk about it if you're married. Pray before you talk. But isn't it great to grow up? To not stay the same. To be energized. To move ahead in our spiritual lives. Some of you may never have even accepted Christ. 
Today would be a great day to do it. To see his power flow into your relationships. Well, I think the best way to end this time is to pray. So let's do that. Father, thank you for being the God who breaks into our lives, who shakes up our world, who won't allow us to, to continue in ways that, that hurt us and detract from your glory. Lord Jesus, you are glorious, glorious Savior. And thank you for coming into this world, taking on human flesh, and being for us all that we needed before the Father, obeying the law perfectly, being perfect for us, and then perfectly taking our curse on the cross. And so right now, as we end this time, as we pull it to a close, we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would target your focus in our hearts. So I just want to say to each one of us, what is the one thing? The one thing. You can't go out of here with a million things. What's the one thing that maybe the Holy Spirit has been saying to you to take out of here and begin to pray about, talk about, study about, think about, and grow in? Where grace can energize your key relationships. And if you have never received Christ as Savior, you got to have the power before you can move into the reality. You got to get grace before you can live grace. And if right now you understand that you need a Savior and that you want to have more, a more grace-filled life and grace-filled relationships, pray a prayer like this. Just say, I'm one of those people here today, God, who needs Christ. I, I can never be good enough. My relationship history is strewn with bodies and a mess. And I pray you'd forgive me. And right now, I, I receive Christ as Savior and Master for the next steps. I don't want to live the way I have lived in the future. I want to start new today. The Bible says, whoever receives him, to them he gave the right to become the children of God. And if you do that, you got to tell somebody. Tell me, tell one of the elders, tell somebody you know. Email the church, whatever. Let us know, because we'd love to stand with you. Lord Jesus. As you perfectly modeled relationships on this planet, may your grace fill us that we might become gracious people. Protect our marriages. Protect our souls. And we thank you that it's all about your grace. For we pray in your strong name, Lord Jesus. Amen.